Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, October 16th, we are studying Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. The prophet continues to speak the word of the Lord against the foreign nations surrounding Judah and Israel. Today's text, the second in a series of eight, is a judgment against a nation that perhaps Christians today will be more readily familiar with, the nation of Philistia. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Reverend Dr. Adam Filipek. Pastor Filipek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Filipek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, and greetings to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Amen. Pastor Filipek, today is the second in this series of judgments or oracles against foreign nations here that Amos opens up with. And so to get us started this morning, why does the Lord bother talking to these foreign nations? Why doesn't he just talk to his people, Israel and Judah? We do often get this concept and idea that somehow Israel is only God's people, period, and he wants nothing to do with the other nations. And perhaps as we go along, I'll address this even more fully than I will right now, but just perhaps by way of introduction, let me say this. The God of Amos is indeed the God of Amos' ancestors, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But before any of that, first and foremost, he is the creator of heaven and earth. The opening chapters of Genesis very clearly indicate this relationship, that God creates the whole earth and everything in it by the power of his word, and he creates man from the dust of the ground, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. So the entire world, long before the nation of Israel exists, long before the man named Israel himself, Jacob, came into existence, there was just the whole of God's people, he the cre- being the creator of heaven, the heavens and the earth. And I, I'll probably talk about this a little bit more at length as we get to the promise of Abraham and things like this, but this is a very, very important thing to remember. God cares about and for everyone because he is the creator and Lord. That's right. And so when we see, as we do in Amos and in other prophets, the Lord speaking to these, what we would call foreign nations in the sense that they aren't Israel or Judah, he does so because he is still their creator. And that's true whether or not they actively worship him or hear his word or recognize who he is, he still is their God. And so he has the right to speak to them. And so he he does that here at the beginning of Amos in order to teach that and, and to do some other things, as we will see. He's, he's sort of drawing a net around his own people here in, in Amos, but he has the complete right to speak to these nations because he is their creator, that very foundation that the, the scriptures give us in Genesis 1 and 2. And so in this second uh, oracle against foreign nations, we're, we're talking about the Philistines. And, and although, well, no, the, the Philistines does come up specifically in verse 8, you get different cities here listed in, in Amos 1, verses 6 through 8. Actually, let me go ahead and read it first. Since we're only talking about three verses, I'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll let you tell us who the Philistines are, Pastor Philippe. So Amos 1, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So there's our our text for today. We're talking about the Philistines. Pastor Philippe, who are the Philistines? 
So just maybe by way of a quick rehearsal, I'll do the best I can in a short amount of time to sort of remind us of all the major events that happened with the Philistines in the Old Testament. So the first time they appear is way back in Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations, right before you get the story of the Tower of Babel, things like that, after the flood. In Genesis 10:14, you'll learn that they're actually descendants of Noah's son, Ham. Remember, he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Well, the Philistines are descendants of Ham, Whereas Israel and the 12 tribes are descendants of Shem. So they all go back to Noah in some way, but the Philistines are connected to Ham. Then in Genesis 26, to fast forward a little bit, there's a narrative of um, Isaac and Abimelech. And during that time, Isaac, who carries the promise of being in the promised land, like we talked about last time, the very presence of God, he carries that promise, but there's a famine in that land. So he is sort of forced to leave that in order to save his life. He goes to Gera, one of the Philistia countries where Abimelech is king, and he dwells there. And he goes with his wife, Rebecca. And Rebecca, the text says, she is absolutely beautiful. So much so that he does what his father Abraham does. He lies. He tells uh, the king Abimelech that, it, you know, this, this Rebecca woman, it's really only my sister. And yeah, he says that to save his life. And as it turns out, as we go through the story, Abimelech sees Isaac caressing Rebecca. He summons him and he finds out, hey, why'd you lie to save that? You know, and Isaac says, you'll save my life. I thought you'd just take my wife, all of these sorts of things. So King Abimelech then forbids anyone to do anything with uh, Rebecca, and they live a little bit down there where Isaac very much increases in wealth, so much so that it's said that the Philistines envy him. He's so envious they have to send him away. So notice now in, from chapter 10 to chapter 26, there's a growing tension, a rising tension between Israel and the Philistines. Well, as we go through the Old Testament, Judges 10, Israel enters the Promised Land. After the exodus, after the wandering of the wilderness for 40 years, they're told to put to death all the people of the land because they worship false gods. And if they get ensnared with them, if they intermarry with them, then what's the temptation? Of course, to worship the false gods with them. So Israel, of course, they don't listen, right? They disobey God's commands. They associate with the Philistines. They worship the Philistine gods, the primary one of the Philistines being Dagon. He'll come up later on. As it's in the history here. The Lord punishes them, though, for their sins of idolatry, for, for fearing, loving, and trusting in another god besides the one true God. And so he allows the Philistines then to attack Israel and to enslave them. Eighteen years of war and in slavery. Israel repents. Of course, the Lord delivers them and restores them back to the land, at least for a while. What's important about this part is that now notice we move from just a, a rising tension to war between Israel and Philistia. Well, it, as you keep going, Judges 13 through 16, Israel falls into idolatry again. They're punished. The Lord does the same thing he did in chapter 10. He allows the Philistines to attack, enslave Israel, only this time not 18 years, no, 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 40 years. And here we get to a familiar story, Pastor Apple. Here's where Samson, the judge Samson, comes into play. And we know the story of Samson, right? Samson wants to marry a Philistine woman. His parents hate that. But his desire is actually from the Lord who sent him to deliver uh, Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And Samson, we know him as the strong one. He's the one who tears apart the lion with his bare hands. And later on, as he's on the way to marry this Philistine woman, he turns aside to that lion carcass and he finds you know, honey inside of it, bees. He eats some with his hand. He reaches in and eats the honey. And then the whole riddle that Samson poses with the 30 sets of clothes. And inevitably, Samson gets the Philistine as his wife, but she is soon given away to another man by her Philistine father because he thinks, oh, Samson can't love her. He hates her. Gives her away. Well, Samson is absolutely furious with this, right? He actually captures 300 foxes, ties the tails together, puts a torch in the middle of their tails, and lets them run through the Philistine grain fields, olive groves, vineyards, essentially burning up crops. Angered by this, then the Philistines try to attack Samson, but Samson slaughters a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey there. Well, and then not long after this, you get the Samson and Delilah story, and it ends with Delilah shaving Samson's hair, Samson losing his strength, going into slavery at the hands of the Philistines, the whole gouging out of the eyes business, and finally, in one last feat of strength, 
after praying to the Lord for that strength to be restored. Samson pushes over the, the pillars of the Philistine temple, killing himself and the rulers and the people in it. And then, yes, Israel, once the judge is raised up, again experiences peace. But the important part of this narrative, again, is to notice how Philistia and Israel are enemies. Again, warring with them, enslaving them, all of these things. It doesn't change. First Samuel 4-7, to the Philistines go to war with Israel once again. And in an epic battle, the Philistines managed to kill 4,000 Israelites in one day. Well, this prompts you know, Hophni and Phinehas to bring out the Ark of the Covenant in hopes that the, Ar- the Ark and the very presence of God will help Israel win, win the battle. But it doesn't because Israel is a sinful, idolatrous people. They are intent on worshiping false gods. So God does not actually fight for them, and Israel doesn't win this battle. In fact, the Philistines win it, slaughtering 30,000 foot soldiers, capturing the Ark of the Covenant, um, and because of this, then, the, they take the Ark of the Covenant to some of the major cities, Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, some of those are mentioned in our text today. They, they take the Ark to those cities, and every city that the Ark of God, the very presence of God goes to in these four nations, everybody breaks out in tumors. Even at one point, they bring it into the temple of Dagon, and this is, I love this story, because Dagon, their false god, right, they, they think Dagon's so much stronger. Dagon gave us this great victory over the God of Israel, right? But we know that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's actually the true God. So the story goes that Dagon then falls face down <laughs> twice, right? Every morning he falls face down. He falls down before um, the one true God, the Ark of the Covenant there. This is another field, a familiar story, but again, notice, war and Philistines and Israel is enemies with Philistia. There are a number of other stories, of course. First Samuel 13 through 14, where Saul goes to war with the Philistines. First Samuel 17 and 18, David's appointed as a future king. I think we love this story, right? He has th- three brothers who go to war, the three oldest ones with Saul against the Philistines. David's the youngest son of Jesse. He remains home, but he's sent, you know, to check on his brother. The father sends a little tokens of good measure, wants to know his son's doing. So give some grain ephahs to his brothers, take ten cheeses for the commanders, so on and so forth. But when David arrives... He learns that everyone is afraid of the Philistine giant named Goliath. Ah, here's, our, here's one of our favorites, right? No one will face him. Well, David does. He fights Goliath in the name of, in the strength of, and with the help of the one true God. David actually kills Goliath with the stones that he slings at his forehead, then cuts off Goliath's head, and the Philistines fear him and run away. Well, for Samuel 23 through 31, 2 Samuel 3, 2 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 21, 2 Samuel 23, all of these. Fighting between Israel and Philistia, and it's all during the reign of David, uh, King David's rule. And in even one instance, uh, David is angered and he goes and fights against Philistia. He recovers the body of King Saul, that they had killed King Saul in a previous battle and taken his body after cutting off the head. They've mounted it in the, in the public square of, of Beth Shan, uh, the the Philistines did, and so David goes and he marches off and he and he takes the body and the and the um, the head back from the Philistines. All of this is to say this that that these stories about the Philistines and Israel show you that Phil, the Philistines are not only a warring people but they are enemies of Israel. That's who the Philistines are: perpetual enemies of Israel. Right, and I think that that rehearsal there that that you gave us is very helpful because it it reminds us that as the people of Israel are listening to Amos preach and you get to the very beginning and he starts denouncing the foreign nations they are not going to be surprised to hear the Lord denounce the Philistines because the Philistines have been constant enemies of Israel and and show and so to see them in this list is not going to be a surprise, which is, is going to help Amos set up what he's the turn that he's going to make in chapter 2, where there is a move in terms of who he's going to denounce. It's not just going to be these enemies of Israel. It's going to be Israel themselves. Now, we'll get there, but but the point stands. Amos is, is here working as a very masterful preacher. He's, he's throwing in things to kind of get his hearers comfortable. Oh, yeah, judge Damascus, like we heard yesterday. Judge the Philistines, and, and, and it will keep going until he, he draws this noose around their, their neck. So, so thank you for that, that 
historical background on the Philistines. It's it's very helpful to us. And and for some reason, it does seem that that those Old Testament accounts that we know well still today as Christians, it just seems that the Philistines are the bad guys in those stories. I'm not sure why that is, but but they are just very constant <laughs> enemies of God's people. And, and so then that that does take us then to to Amos's day. Amos is going to to use them as an example here in, in his preaching here in chapter one. And so, but by the time you get to Amos, the, the historical situation has changed from those examples that, that you were reciting earlier, Pastor Philippeck. Absolutely. So, I mean, all of this have went up to the reign of King David, but after this, David has a son, Solomon. Solomon reigns, and then, as I and the other guests have said in other episodes, it's during Solomon's son's reign. His name is Rehoboam, that Israel splits into two kingdoms. That's right around like 931 B.C., and each has its own king and capital, right? The southern kingdom, it's comprised of Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes, it's ruled by Rehoboam, Solomon's son, its capital, Jerusalem. Northern kingdom, comprised of the other ten tribes of Israel, that's one's ruled by Jeroboam, and the northern kingdom's capital is located in Samaria. And we could you certainly go to Jesus and the Samaritans and all that sort of stuff, but all that is, is located here in the northern kingdom. The prominent feature, though, in the southern kingdom, as we have been talking about it in our last time together with the Salvation Saga, is the temple. It's the Ark of the Covenants where God dwells with his people. But the prominent feature of the northern kingdom, upon its inception, is the two golden calves that Jeroboam builds and... He builds them to keep the citizens from traveling down to Jerusalem. He fears that they're going to migrate down there and just set up shop down there and live down there, because, and he doesn't want that. He wants to keep his rule and reign. So notice that one of the key features of the northern kingdom, which Amos is going to preach against, is idolatry. It's worshiping the false god. Well, about 139 to 191 years after the split of Israel and the two kingdoms, right around 792 to 740 B.C., early to middle 8th century. That's when the prophet Amos comes in, the, the shepherd from Tekoa of the southern kingdom of Judah, about five miles south of Bethlehem. He's sent to prophesy primarily, like you said, against the northern kingdom, though a little bit on the southern kingdom and a little bit uh, on the foreign nations in chapter 1 and 2. And you hit the nail on the head, Pastor Apple. It really, uh, the, the, the northern kingdom would be shaking their heads and cheering like, yeah, condemn, condemn those wicked enemies of ours. But actually the, the shock of Amos is that they all get lumped in with the nations. Israel included gets lumped in with everyone. Well, Amos's message is, is rather simple, right? Amos is a, is a prophet, and it's, it's during the reign of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom and during the reign of King Uzziah in the southern kingdom that Amos preaches. And his contemporary uh, prophets that he lives at the same time and preaches at the same time, you'd be looking at Jonah and Hosea and Micah and Isaiah. Jonas's message, though, is or, um, Jonah. <laughs> Amos's message is very simple. It's like his contemporary. Repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your idolatry. Repent before it's too late. The wages of, si of your sin is warranting this, the mighty, roaring, fiery judgment of God, and you will receive those wages. That's, that's Amos' message to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, and certainly to, to the neighboring cities, the foreign cities, including in our text today, Philistia, which is southwest yeah, so of Israel. Okay, so yeah, so Philistia would be then along the the Mediterranean coast, right? I mean, that's kind of if we're thinking about Israelite geography here, that that's southwest of of the nation. So so they're a, more of a, a coastal people, and and they get addressed. It, it does say Philistines there there at the end, but you get these these cities named too Gaza. Um, let's see, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron. There's a there's a fifth one that doesn't get named Gath. That's where Goliath is from, but but it's not named here. And and Gaza stands at the beginning, and you get this phrase that is repeated in all of these judgments against the nations: for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. What's going on with that phrase? Three transgressions for four, Pastor Philippeck. I love this question because part of my area of, of passion and theology and things like that is early patristic homiletical rhetoric. So, so how do you use words um, in your preaching? How did the early church use words? And so I'm very 
very much involved in um, rhetorical devices. So this, this question of, of three and four transgressions works along this line. You notice that the same phrase is repeated, right? It was spoken to Damascus in Amos chapter 1, verse 3. And you might recall that really only one sin was listed in Damascus, not, not three or four sins. So the wrong way to take this is, is, is simply that there's three sins that will be listed. Oh, no, wait, there's four sins to be listed. Right? There's nothing particularly special about the numbers three or four themselves. It's not like, like I said, Amos is going to list three sins and then say, oh, wait, no, 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 wait, there's a fourth. Here it is. No, this phrase, for three sins of and for four. In the Hebrew, ashol pesha azah alhala arba. This for three sins or for four is really just uh, spoken to to the Pentopolis, to to the five major cities: Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, and Ashkelon. Gath is not listed, so it's most of them. Like you said, Gath is not in here, um, but it is a rhetorical vi- device. And in in rhetoric, we would call this in an aphora. In an aphora, is simply a deliberate repetition of a beginning sentence, and it's used to create an in emphasis. Scripture does this all over the place. One of my favorite examples is of, of this to kind of get our mind around a rhetorical device like anaphora, that constant repetition, is Song of Solomon 4 verse 1, where Solomon says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Notice the repetition. Behold, you are beautiful. Solomon is using this phrase repeatedly to emphasize, or in his case, in Song of Solomon, to celebrate the beauty of the bride, to draw attention to it. Well, Amos is no different. The phrase for three transgressions and of and for four, I will not revoke punishment, it is repeated in order to emphasize the abundance and gravity of Philistia's sins. In essence, the anaphora is used to say to Philistia this, that you have sinned and sinned more than enough, buddy, or your sins overflow and they are in abundance. That's how I'd understand that phrase. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And and the fact that it is three and then four, you get the escalation just within the numbers that are used there. Um, you know, it, it's it wasn't you know it, it's one more. And, and so the idea of escalation, and this is as you as you pointed out, is is just a rhetorical device, and it's one that's pretty common within Hebrew poetry. The the idea that you would put two, it's called parallelism, and I'm, I'm sure you could probably talk about this better than me. Um, but but parallelism <laughs> is the idea that you put two phrases next to each other, and they're meant to explain each other in some way. And and here the explanation is, I think, as you pointed out, the idea of escalation that it it's not only. Uh, three sins and then four, right? As if you're counting or doing some kind of math, but but that the idea is it's growing, it's gr- getting greater, and it's overflowing. Um, going back to, and I know you're going to take us to Abraham in, in a little while, but but if you go back to uh, Genesis 15, where the Lord's talking about how how he's the he's waiting until the sins of the Amorites fill up before he, he drives them from the land, you get that that same idea here that that the sins of these various foreign nations and ultimately coming towards God's people as, as those who've, who've done it as well, it's, it's overflowing. It's, it's happened in abundance such that the Lord is not going to revoke the punishment anymore. It, it's, it's done. It's overflowing, abounding. So I think that's, that's the idea. It's not so much about math as it is about it. It's just, <laughs> I've had enough almost maybe is, is another way to, to say it. So, yeah. so Pastor Philbeck with about, and feel free to, if you want to add something to that, go ahead. But but with about two and a half minutes here before the break, what is it, and maybe just get us started on this conversation, what's the Lord going to point out particularly about the Philistines? Okay, so this really comes in the start of our text for today in verse 6, after the three uh, transgressions of Gaza and four. I will not revoke my punishment. In verse 6, it's this phrase, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up. Um, really, the crime is how they treated their fellow human beings who were created in the image of God. Their sins are, in essence, crimes against humanity. They are aren't helping their neighbors, they aren't protecting them, they're not caring for them. In fact, they're warring against them, they're fighting against them, they're conquering them, and when they are defeated, defeated, the enemies are defeated of Philistia, then what they're doing, that whole carrying into exile, the whole people, that whole 
that remnant there, they're not leaving anybody left. They're not even they're not even like somehow letting them live and rebuild. No, actually what they're doing is they're taking that remaining people, that remnant whom they conquered, and they're selling them as slaves to Edom. Or to put it differently, the Philistines are selling the entire nation, the whole nation of the people that they just conquered into slavery. So the Philistines are treating human beings as property, that which could be either disposed of or that which could be bought or sold for their own benefit. And, and man, God has had enough of it. He's had enough of their evil, detestable, wicked, fifth and first commandment sins. And through the words of Amos, God is pronouncing that the wages of the Philistine sins, namely his roaring, fiery judgment of death, is coming upon them. The wages of sin is death. And when death comes, God will do to the Philistines what they have done to humanity. He will not leave a remnant of that people. Or in the words of Amos, the remnant of the Philistines will perish. And just by way of quick summary, of course, the Philistines did not repent of their wickedness, though Amos preached. So in the fact, the Lord does enact that roaring, fiery judgment, which he proclaims Amos, uh, through the mouth of Amos on the Philistines. In 734 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser III, king of Assyria, in the course of his campaign against Israel, whom he will capture in 722, actually in 734, captures Gaza. And the word of the Lord uh, proves truth through the mouth of Amos. It's exactly as the Lord said it. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We need to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, October 16th. We are looking at Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the judgment against the Philistines that the prophet speaks. We've got Pastor Adam Philippeck from Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgerwood, North Dakota with us. Pastor Philippeck, we, we've been looking at, at these, and, and I think it, it would be good to come back and, and tie in a little bit more with where we started, that the Lord has right to speak to these people because he's their creator. He's the one that that made them, that put them there, even if they don't recognize him. And and yet, as you mentioned earlier, you know, these are command these are sins that they're committing against the fifth commandment, against the first commandment. Those are words that the Lord spoke to his people, Israel, not to the Philistines. I mean, we're still kind of struggling with with how that that fits in. That he's going to spend all this time talking to the Philistines here. Keep digging into that for us. Sure. So, to your question about what right God has to talk to the Philistines and the fact that He is the Creator, we started talking about this at the beginning. I told you I'd come back to it, so it's only fair that you ask again and, and we come back to it. So let's let's kind of dig into this a little bit. So, yes, I said earlier that the God of Amos, indeed the God of His ancestors, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, and God of Isaac, God of Jacob, is first and foremost the Creator of heaven and the earth. He created the nations, and before the nation of Israel or the man who was named Israel. Israel, renamed Israel, rather, because his name was Jacob. Before that came into existence, God was already creator of heaven and the earth and had this people and had a promise, actually, to the people that traces far further than even Abraham. It goes all the way back, as we talked about in our salvation saga, to Genesis 3.15 and the promise of Adam and the crushing of the head of the serpent and the restoring of the presence of God. So first and foremost, God has the authority over them because he is their creator. Additionally, then, 
we sometimes forget because we get so focused on the nation of Israel and this promise uh, that gets passed along to them all, from all the way down to Adam, this promised seed, uh, this promised child who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the presence of God, right? The promised land where there's no weeping and sorrow and mourning and death. All those great things we've talked about. We follow this promise throughout the Old Testament, and in doing so, we focus primarily on the nation of Israel. But sometimes to the exclusion of the other nations. But if we recall the Genesis 12 promise that's passed to Abraham, I think it's very, very helpful. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, God says to Abraham, who is just Abram at the time, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. And here's the key phrase, in you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. So notice, included in Abraham's promise is not just the nation of Israel, but all nations that what's coming through the lineage and genealogy of Abraham is going to be a blessing, not just for Israel, but for all nations. This is actually said throughout the Old Testament. I think we just miss it again in Isaiah 19.25 when we're talking about the nations and we've got two huge nations uh, in the old Testament that are being talked about in Isaiah 19, uh, we're talking about Egypt who enslaved God's people for 400 years. And we're talking about Assyria, the ones who are going to come through to this Northern kingdom after Amos's word and actually uh, take them slavery and destroy their cities in 722 BC. So Egypt, Assyria and Israel are all addressed. And here's what God says to the prophet Isaiah, a contemporary of Amos in chapter 19, 19, verse 25, blessed be, get this, Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the works of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And each one of these things are actually all these nations God calls Egypt, my people, Assyria, they're my, they're my handiwork, right? That creator language, and Israel, then inheritance. That sonship, that promised seed, that child connection, only children inherit things. So all these different things. So in summary, here we go. Here's what I'm saying. God actually creates and cares about and for everyone and everything. And everyone and everything is under the authority of the creator, God himself. I want to say this last part again because I I really think we miss that. Everything and everyone is under the authority of the Creator, the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you doubt that, look at what happens after the sin in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 4, look at Cain who kills his brother Abel. Look at the crime against humanity there. You want to talk about crimes against humanity like the Philistines? I don't think there's one greater uh, than, than Cain killing his brother. And remember, the law had not been given to Moses yet. We're back in Genesis, not Exodus. But what does God do? He comes and he actually holds Cain accountable. And he asks Cain about Abel, and Abel, you know, Cain quits him, I'm my brother's keeper, and there's sort of a rhetorical, you know, rhetorical meaning, you know, it's not answered out loud, God doesn't respond to the question, but it's like, yes, yes you are, don't you know, don't you remember how I created you? And this is evidenced by the fact that, that God then says, because your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So even before Moses marches up the mountain, marches up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. It's categorically wrong to murder. Before there is the people of Israel, the law of God exists, and it exists for all people. It is bigger and older than just the Ten Commandments. Here's what I mean by that. That is that when we talk about the law, we think about the Ten Commandments as as simply God's law. But the law is much bigger than that. The law is simply God's will for his creation. It's how he has designed this world to function. And the Ten Commandments are part of that. So what Moses actually receives on Sinai is not something new. It's just God saying what he, how he has designed this world. He's sort of just articulating to Moses, here's how I created it. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, so on and so forth. It's just, here's here's how I built this world to function. So notice, back in Genesis 4, before Moses marched up the mountain, it's wrong to murder. It is wrong to hurt or harm your neighbor in their body. You are not given to do that. You are given to help and support him in every physical need. And every being, Pastor Apple, every human being, whether you're a Christian or not, recognizes this. 
on some level. This is what St. Paul says in Romans 2.15, that the work of the law is written on our hearts. Meaning that the natural law is just built into creation. And there is there's a, a lot of truth, and we could talk about this uh, you know, ad nauseum, quite a bit of length, that when Jesus says, I didn't know, or when Paul says, I didn't know what it was to covet until I was told, and now I see, you know, I covet all over the place. Yes, it is true that when we learn the Ten Commandments in catechesis and confirmation, that we see the fullness of the law. But there is a dim reflection here that Paul's saying that is written on our heart. And you can even look at a baby, right? Even a little, little infant knows this. If an infant's playing with a toy or something, you know, a little toddler even, playing with a toy and you take it away, do you have to sit there and say, okay, now, remember, this is, a, this is something that the Lord has said in his seventh commandment. You shall not steal. Now, you need to cry over this, and you need to chase after them. <laughs> no, child, we don't have to say that to children. They know. They start bawling, mine, 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 right? And they start chasing each other through the house, and mom and dad have to get intervened. But this is because the law is written on our hearts. We know it is wrong to steal, whether we are Christian or not. And I think this is the startling thought, because... The law of God being written on our hearts means that we are created and we are required by God to live according to that law. Matthew 5:48 to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. I don't think too many 21st century Americans want to hear this though. I don't like to hear this as a 21st century American. We are we are a, a nation and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be if we take it too far. We are a nation of, of sort of individuals that make up, uh, you know, a larger whole. We are a nation that values individualism and autonomy, right? Who I am my own person, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, all these things, which are, are not wrong in of themselves. But we take this to the degree, so much so that you hear, who are you to tell me that it's wrong to do this? Who are you to tell me? Right? Th this is the nation of autonomy. But... In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, it clearly states, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. And again, when the Son of Man comes from Matthew chapter 25, in his glory, he and all the angels with him, he will sit on this glorious throne, all nations will get, he will gather before him. Notice, all nations will be gathered before him, and he will judge, right? He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goat. And who can stand? Who can stand before the judgment seat of God in and of themselves? We have all committed crimes against humanity. Violent actions, hitting, smacking, beating, speaking, debasing, insulting words, idiot, jerk, moron, loser, so on and so forth. Speaking foul and dirty words to describe our neighbor, neglecting to clothe or feed someone who's in need, avoiding eye contact or avoiding talking to someone, seeing them and turning the other direction, pretending we didn't see them because we just don't want to like them and want to talk on it. Uh, to them. I mean, the list goes on and on, but Romans 3 and 6 are clear, right? No one is righteous. All sin, all fall short of the glory of God. The just wages of sin is death. So quite frankly, the word of the day, the word of Amos in chapters 1, verses 6 through 8 to Philistia, it can be likened and adapted uh, to the words of Jesus in, in our day and age even. Uh, Jesus speaking to the Jews from Luke 13, right? Here's my adaptation based upon Amos' words to us today. Do you think that the Philistines are worse sinners than you? No, I tell you. But unless you too repent, you likewise will perish. Amos' word, indeed God's word, is just that. It is repent. Repent before it is too late. Exactly. And, and as, you were, as you were talking, and particularly when it comes to this matter of the fact that, you know, these are Philistines who didn't have the word of the Lord, the, the phrase that was running through my mind, at least, was, was that you could, you could say that Amos might say it like this, you should have known better. Even though you didn't yeah. have the Ten Commandments, you should have known better. You just don't do this to people. And, and I mean, you, you brought up Romans chapter two, where where Paul talks about how the law is written on on the hearts of everyone. And and, and when I teach this in in youth and adult confirmation classes, I you know I, I pose the question to them: if you were to poll, yeah, you know, a hundred people who live in Smithville or Lidger, do you have a hundred people who live in Lidgerwood? I don't know how big Lidgerwood is. Smithville has four. Yeah, six hundred fifty. Perfect. So if you poll all six hundred fifty of those people in Lidgerwood, is murder wrong? 
you would get a very high percentage of people that would say, yes, murder is wrong. I mean, some people would probably want to, you know, talk about the gray areas and, and want to talk about exceptions and, and such things like that. But, but they would know better, right? Because the law has been written on yeah. their hearts. And, and even in the evil age that we live in, where so much that is good is called evil and so much that is evil is called good, there still is, is I would say, a fairly broad agreement on such questions like that. So that the people of Philistia, when they failed to take a remnant at all, they carried the whole people away to Edom. They didn't spare the women or the children. They carried everybody off into slavery. They should have known mm -hmm. better. The law was written on their hearts too. Or, or as, as Jesus will, will say you know, to his disciples when he's talking about how they should love, you know, he, he tells them to love their enemies because even the pagans know how to love the people who love them, right? They should have known better. And, and that's, I mean, I think that's part of the yep. gist when it comes to these, these oracles against the four nations. Even though they didn't have the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, the law was written upon their hearts. God had created them. He wove this into the fabric of, of his creation, and they should have known better. And so God comes along and says, for these transgressions, I will not revoke the punishment. Uh, response, Pastor Philippe? I think you are you are right on this is the, this is the heart of Amos and honestly and sadly this is the heart of of the preaching of Amos it is a preaching of repentance it is primarily a preaching of the law first to the four nations and while Israel and Judah are shaking their head northern and southern kingdom the glance turns suddenly to Judah and says you're not innocent and then the rest of the book in, from three forward is spent on the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, those ten tribes. And it, the prophecy then of Amos is primarily against them. You're not any better. In fact, you're in idolatry. The whole book is a call to repentance. Uh, there's not many bright spots. <laughs> a few, but there's not many bright spots, uh, meaning gospel proclamations. It, it's, a, it's a hard word of repentance proclaimed to all people. Yes, all exactly. Things, all fall short of the glory of God, that sort of thing. Yep. Right, right. And and whether whether you you know the word of God or don't, right? It, it's all God is holding all people accountable here. And and so I mean we we need to see that. We need to let that stand. It is a hard word and and there aren't too many bright spots in Amos. And yet, right? And and I think think you've already laid the groundwork for this. But but we still want I mean we know that that the the entirety of the scriptures is a preaching of repentance and forgiveness in Christ's name. And so as, as we consider the hard word that we have here in Amos chapter 1, uh, really all of Amos 1, but particularly against the Philistines in, in verses 6 through 8, I mean, where where are we going to find Christ as as our comfort, as our salvation, as, as Amos is preaching here? Sure. So, so the hope of all of this, the hope of uh, Philistia and Israel and Judah, you, me, all the nations, comes throughout Amos, but really toward the end, after he has proclaimed judgment in verses or in chapters one through eight. And there's again, there's bright spots in five and things like that, but. Um, Chapter 9, specifically 11 through 12, Amos says this. And I don't want to steal somebody else's thunder, but I'm just going to use this sort of as, as the way that this, this proclaims Christ crucified and risen, the hope of all nations. So in nine chapters 11, or chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, there is hope, and it comes and in, in these words. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. There's David again. That has fallen and repaired its Reaches. I will raise up the runes and rebuild it in day, as in days of old, and they may possess the remnant of Edom and all nations who call upon my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader, the grapes, the sowers, the seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will overflow. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities. They shall plant. He goes on to talk about... Uh, notice that, that, that he goes on to talk about not only the rebuilding 
um, not only the remnant of Israel being restored, and not only having the the promise of Genesis 3.15 remaining, that what was promised to Adam, what was promised to Abraham, what was promised, and I'll, I'll put Noah there, Adam and Seth and Noah, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth through the line of Judah, that promised seed is going to crush the head of the serpent and restore to us the promise of God to free us from our sin, our bondage to sin, our slavery to sin, that, that promised seed who is coming, that promise still remains. Even after the Lord's punishment comes, still the promise stands and there is hope. It's in the promised seed. So at the end of all the death and judgment, Amos proclaims the hope of Genesis 3.15. God's going to still send that promised child. He's still going to send that um, promised child to restore the promised land and the kingdom. And notice how Amos lumped in all the nations, even Edom, who call by my name. So this promise, this promised seed is far more than just the remnant of Israel or the remnant of Judah. It's far larger than that. This goes back to what we said about Genesis 12, Abraham's promise that it, all nations of the earth will be blessed in this one. And how will all nations be blessed? Well, yes, the promised seed, this child, will come through the lineage of Israel specifically the tribe of Judah, but this promise is consistent with twelve Genesis 12 and Isaiah 19, that this Savior who's going to come from Israel is not just for Israel, but for all nations. In short, Jesus, the promised Savior, comes through the lineage of Israel, but he is for all people, for you and for me who have committed crimes against humanity. And now that the promised seed has come, whose name is Jesus, that promised seed humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. He's the one whom Moses and Elijah were speaking with about his own exodus at the transfiguration, how he would lead his people out of the slavery of sin, death, and the devil into the promised land, into the very presence of God, how he would take his own remnant and restore them into the eternal kingdom and presence of God forever. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you who and I, who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. He has put the spirit into a heart, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. We are no longer slaves, but we are sons of God, heirs through faith. And faith having come to us as many of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have the saving faith of Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, notice the nations there, right, of Paul and Galatians, slave nor free, male or female, all are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then get this, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. I think that the bringing out the promise to Abraham really helps tie some of these things together. We were saying earlier that, that God has the right to speak to the Philistines because he is their creator. He's the one who gave them life and, and put this law upon their hearts. But as you bring out the, the promise to Abraham that in Abraham's family, all the families of the earth will be blessed, God also has the right to speak to the Philistines and the other four and these other foreign nations, because he's also their savior. He's, he's the one who's going to send the, the promised seed, going back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 and, and 2 Samuel 7 with, with David, who, who, as you pointed out in Amos 9, is, is, is a huge, huge deal, that the, the, the fallen booth of David's going to be restored. All of this is done not just for Israel and Judah. It is done for the whole world. And so God speaks to these foreign nations here in Amos, not only because he's created them, but also because he's sending the Savior for them too. This one who will come and restore the fallen booth of David does so not just for the people who are physically related to David. Rather, it is, it is those who share the faith of David. And as, as you pointed out in Galatians 3, those who share the faith of Abraham, who trust in the promised seed. And so I think that, and that really helps us tie, you know, to use those those dogmatic terms, that, that helps us to tie this together in law and gospel in, in a text that, that certainly preaches repentance primarily, and yet it doesn't doesn't leave us without hope. And I, I think that's that's a that's a wonderful connection. Pastor Philip, like we got about four minutes left here on the morning. Any any points to bring out that we haven't um, or or just kind of wrap all of this together for us today. Sure. Um, we have not really focused on I figured you'd focus on it with uh, earlier guests how verse 6 begin, it, it begins, it's also one of those anaphoristic sta uh, phrases that I mentioned earlier, thus says the Lord. I mean, just think about this. 
this is a this is a shepherd from Tekoa. He is not a prophet, uh, as as a traditional prophet would be. Yet God calls him to go and to preach to these people. And you know this idea of uh, who are you, Amos, uh, to preach to us about such things? You you Judite shepherd, you you know this kind of thing. Uh, but in all of this, as these things are coming through, the earthquake is happening. Assyria and Philistia are being leveled. Um, Babylonians come in. What we see is that the Lord's word remains true. He who said to the wind and the waves, well, first, he who said, let there be light, and there was light, said this is going to happen through the mouth of Amos, and it happened, and yet the remnant remains. I'm still going to save all people through this promised seed. He who, he who said to the wind and the waves, this promised seed who has come, Jesus, peace be still, says to you and I, who have committed crimes against humanity, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of, um, well, the pastor. But the word is not the pastor's. The word is not Amos's. The word is Christ's. The word is the creator's. When he speaks, it happens. And when he says to you, you are my people, I mark you with your, my cross on your forehead and on your heart. I baptize you. You belong to me, not sin, death, and the devil. And you will live with me in my kingdom. You will no longer be slaves of sin and death and the devil. You will be my people. I will be your, your God. You are my son, sons of God through faith, your brother being Jesus. You have been grafted into my vine, and I am yours, and you are mine. You will live. Yours is forgiveness. Yours is life. Yours is salvation. That's the word that's powerful. It's living and active. And yeah, it comes from the mouth of Amos, but he's just an instrument. The word is Christ's words. The word is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has spoken. He will do it. Pastor Adam Filipek is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Pastor Filipek, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The Lord has spoken, and he will do what he says. The word that came through the prophet Amos is true. The judgment pronounced on the Philistines happened. They did not repent, but you and I get to hear those words those words that expose our crimes against humanity, crimes that, that we should have known better so that we might hear the law of the Lord, mourn over our sin, repent, and turn to Christ. For in Christ alone is our only hope, the one who had the wrath of God poured out upon him, only in him, only by faith in him, baptized into him, can we escape God's wrath and anger, for it has been poured upon poured upon his son, Jesus Christ, instead of upon you and upon me. And that is our hope, our joy as God's people today, knowing what our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us, and not only for us, but for all people, all people he has created, all people he has shed his blood for, that they might trust in him for salvation. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for studying God's Word with us this morning. Talk to you again tomorrow.